Pidcast, a podcast brought to you by the Piddington Society. This is a special edition of the Pidcast. Our names are Amy, Rihanna and Amara and we are 2020 Pid grads. This is a mini-series opening discussions relating to advocacy and criminal law with judicial officers of the Supreme and District Courts of Western Australia. This is episode one, part two. Episode one is our Supreme Court episode and part two naturally follows on from part one. In part two, our Supreme Court guests discuss adversarial tips and tricks. Their honours also tell us what justice means to them. Before we get into part two, we would like to extend our gratitude to Justice Quinlan, Chief Justice of Western Australia, Justice Mazza, Justice Corboy, and the Honourable Lindy Jenkins for being guests on our PIDcast. We're going to transition now into some advocacy-based questions. So what common adversarial mistakes do you see junior practitioners make and can they be avoided? Well, junior practitioners, um, practitioners generally, lack of preparation is the primary one. I've said it so many times, why you would ever come to court without your criminal code and your sentencing <laughs> act, you know, is beyond me. And yet practitioners do it all the time. Why put yourself behind the eight ball to start with? Um, and not knowing your brief, not knowing your client, how to pronounce your client's name, and uh, you should never display arrogance towards someone who you want to persuade to your point of view because it doesn't work. So the big mistake I think that junior practitioners do is they spend 95% of their time on what a judge spends 5% of their time on. So they spend 95% of the time trying to analyse the law and tell you what in the end, for a trial judge in particular, will often be relatively straightforward principles of law. The difficulty in law is the application of what are usually settled principles to facts. So the two things I think that junior practitioners don't do is that they're not anywhere near curious enough about the facts if they spent the time that they spend trying to work out what one High Court judge said as opposed to another High Court judge, if they spent that time trying to work out what one witness said and whether or not it had the ring of truth about it and if so, why, and what the circumstances were that supported a version of the facts, then they would be a lot better off. Um, and that's what judges grapple with got to be curious about the facts and then you have to think about the application of the law to those facts as you want them to be found. I think that the, and it's, it happens with junior practitioners because there's an, there's an element of what experience gives you. Um, perhaps the most um, obvious thing that you see is a lack of responsiveness or attention to um, what's going on in the courtroom. Uh, advocacy can be very frightening at the beginning and it's also pretty frightening at the end as you go through. Uh, so you tend to prepare a lot. Preparation's great, but there's, there's nothing more dispiriting than seeing somebody who's got a script that they're going to follow regardless of what's going on around them. And that applies both in trial work. You see it with a person who's cross-examining a witness or examining a witness and not listening to what the witness is saying. But you also find it in appeal work as well, where the advocate isn't reading what the bench is doing. 
what the bench is interested in, what arguments are getting somewhere and, and, and what they're going to have difficulty with. And I think that the, the ability to, to be supple and to move uh, as you're observing what's going on in the courtroom is something that you can call it a mistake, but it's really something that's born of um, the desire to control things and, and, and to over-prepare. I agree. I agree with that. Uh, the reason for it is nervousness and, and fear, um, and the safety of a script. Um, but at some point, there needs to be a conscious let, letting go. The way in which I might think that I think that happens is you start if you can start your advocacy career, particularly in the magistrates' court. With, with brief appearances, um, you can then expand them to, to longer appearances and then to, to trial work and, and, and from there hopefully you can you can develop. But it takes a period of time. I would, would add to it, um, don't be too loud and don't be too aggressive, particularly in cross-examining witnesses um, and, and sometimes that's born out of again a desire to do well it's also born out of the idea that by being loud and aggressive you can get your way through you can force your way through uh, what you miss however is that it's often unattractive advocacy and it's also discordant because you can sometimes have a witness you, that, that you've been quite aggressive with um, who is, for some reason or other, vulnerable and you look bad. So you need, sometimes you do need to be forceful, sometimes you need, do need to raise your voice a little, but you should use those things sparingly. Um, and the other thing is, don't ever... If you're asked a question and you don't know the answer, don't bluff it. Uh, because contrary to what you might think by your, what you think is your articulate and smart answer, the judicial officer normally has your measure and knows that you're trying to bluff them. And if you lose confidence, if a, if a judicial officer loses confidence in you or trust in you, that is really difficult to retrieve. You, you know, you, you, your reputation is everything. Don't do anything that jeopardises your reputation. I'm not saying that young lawyers do that, but sometimes, particularly out of the idea that you don't want to admit your ignorance, uh, you might try and bluff it. Can I add one thing? Because it, it is something I think that a lot of judges realise when they become judges that they may not have been aware of before, which is in the courtroom, the judge notices everything. You notice every little <laughs> sigh and harumph and those sorts of things, <laughs> and they are always unhelpful and distracting so uh, that's something to bear in mind yeah. that 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 
it, it is, it, and it, I think it just comes from the perspective of where you are. But you think when you're at the bar table that that, that kind of sniping is all sort of under under the um, radar. It's not. It's up front and you can, you, you, judges notice it the whole time. How important is preparation in good advocacy? Uh, well, I've said it's, a, it's essential. I just think it starts and ends there. No, it doesn't end there, but it certainly starts there. You know, what I told my children, uh, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. It's uh, everything in life um, comes down to that, in my view. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think you have to be prepared, but it's about being prepared, but being confident enough to be able to move from what you're doing. And I, and I think in that respect, it's, it's, it's the kind of preparation you do. I mean, I, we all work differently. I am probably what would best be described as an immersive preparer rather than a methodical preparer. So I never start at the beginning and methodically work through. I sort of dive into the middle and then it goes out in sort of um, octopus-like tentacles <laughs> where I'll then pick up things. But the idea is to somehow have a coherent picture of the whole of the case so that you then have the confidence to move from one part to another. So that's how I've always viewed preparation in is is in getting the whole of the case into your head uh, so that you then do have the freedom to be able to move from one aspect of it to another. See, I think there's, there is preparation and preparation. There's good preparation and bad preparation. Um, in the context of a criminal case, the most important thing is to have a case concept, is to know intimately what your case concept is and obviously to know what the case is against you and what evidence you've got. You can, you know, over-prepare in the sense... I think over-preparation is actually bad preparation. So it, it might be... Let me give you an example. It might be to devise a cross-examination. And I know that some people do this and they do this, I think it suits them, but a cross-examination that has sort of many branches. So here's a line of cross-examination. If the witness answers, yes, I'm going down this way. If the issue, witness answers, no, I'm going this way. And what that means is that you do have that lack of flexibility. I think that's, that, that, that's the danger with that. Um, so I think you've got to be smart about, about your preparation. But there are certain minimum standards. And as I said, I think for me, the minimum standard is clear case concept, intimate knowledge of the facts, both against you and, and for you. I mean, an advice on evidence is a very old fashioned thing, but I think it's a really good thing to help young lawyers prepare. Uh, and so that's that's what I would say about about preparation. Aim to be the person in the room who knows most about the facts. You know, aim to be to know more about the facts than your opponent or the judge. So that when the judge says or your opponent says X, and you know that's wrong, you're able to say, 
that's wrong, here it all is. How important is communication to good advocacy? Well, I think this is, um, you know, even going back to what we were talking about earlier about being, um, uh, reflecting on one's uh, legal career, I think that very early on in your legal career, it's, it would be fantastic to realise that actually communication, that is what you were doing as an advocate. And actually getting some training in effective communication as a young advocate um, would be a tremendous thing to do. And unfortunately, our, it seems our, certainly our legal training when I was doing it, it was so focused on the legal issues um, and learning the law um, that we didn't spend any time thinking about actually when it comes to practice what are we trying to do um, we are trying to communicate our view and to persuade another of that view and how should we be doing that and how can we be, de be developing our personal um, skills to do that as effectively as possible it would have been tremendous if 40 years ago I'd had some training training in communication mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So learning clarity of expression, and that means, I think, when you're young, taking any opportunity to speak to an audience, regardless of the circumstances, that helps you learn how to express yourself clearly and also to overcome the nerves that naturally occurs when you speak in public. Um, the advanced advocacy course that the Australian Bar Association runs, they have running in tandem with mentors and coaches about advocacy. They have three people who are communication experts, one of whom's an expert in voice production, one of whom's an expert in clear expression and one of whom does both and they, after every session, they sit down with people who are the participants and deal with things like their voice and so on. Um, I think clarity of expression is the critical thing. I don't think it particularly matters whether you're not, you've got a dramatic style, whether you look like you're straight out of a media, television or film drama. It's the clarity of thought. That's what judges want. That's what juries want. It's, We're synonyms. It's essential, yeah. yeah. Advocacy is yeah. communication. Yeah. And it's, it's a really important point. Advocacy is not a performance. It's a process of communication. And that means that the most successful advocacy is that which communicates to the court precisely what it is that you want them to understand not whether or not other people watching think wow he or she's impressive the best advocate i ever saw in the high court of australia and and it was an expression that i picked up from him and often used i've said that badly your honors can I go back and start again? 
Now, if you're looking at advocacy as a performance, you won't do that because you will want it to all look polished. But if it's a communication, you will you will notice that you are not communicating and you'll stop and say, let me start again. So I agree with all of that. Um, advocacy is also about persuasion and there are different techniques uh, and different forms of communication depending on whether you're seeking to persuade a magistrate, a jury, uh, a judge in the General Division of the Supreme Court or a panel of judges in the Court of Appeal or the High Court. Rhetoric has a place uh, perhaps its best home is before a jury, but I don't think it has a place uh, in very many other venues. It, it, it has some, some place. You're not going to be able to persuade uh, the High Court, the Court of Appeal, based on, on rhetoric. So content, uh, particularly when I think the venue is a, a judge or magistrate, sitting alone or a panel of judges. Content is good persuasion, is good advocacy and, and, and gets you home. How can an advocate work on the art of persuasion? I've already sort of mentioned one way and that is to get sort of training in communication. Mm. Um, but the, and working on clarity of um, content is another. And lastly, it comes down to the preparation, I think, of um, beforehand listing your, the strengths of your case on the other side of the page, listing the weaknesses and in respect of the weaknesses, working out how you're going to um, meet those weaknesses so that when you actually get up to speak, um, you know what you're going to say and you know that it's relevant and hopefully persuasive because you've emphasised your strengths and meet the weaknesses of your case. I should have had just to go back <laughs> to the last question. Talking about clarity and the lack of preparation. That's right. If you want to be an advocate, you should invest in yourself. So when I mentioned about what the ABA does in their advanced advocacy course, there are people who teach voice in Western Australia. You should spend the money on yourself. As far as working on the art of persuasion, think of your audience. It's your audience that in the end you are trying to persuade. So the art of persuasion is thinking about what does your audience know and what does your audience want. So the way in which you advocate in the Court of Appeal is very different to the way in which you advocate before a magistrate. A magistrate who might have a list of, these days a magistrate might have a list of 100 matters. So the five minutes that you have in front of a magistrate is very different to a hearing in front of a judge in the district or the Supreme Court. So it's thinking about your audience. What does your audience already know? What do they need to know? And pairing it back to the essentials of what does your audience need to know and how they're best going to understand it. It'll be different for a jury, it'll be different for a judge, it'll be different for an appellate judge, it'll be different for a magistrate. I think the single most important thing as an advocate, when I was an advocate, and now, happily, I find uh, being a judge is um, 
the capacity to simplify, to take a, a complex set of um, facts or legal issues and to distill and articulate them in a way uh, that makes sense and, and simplifies. I, I, I've said in the Bar Readers course things before, every piece of work that you put into a case should make it less complex, not more complex. That might mean getting rid of things that are not helping. Um, that's not to say that cases aren't complex and, and cases can be incredibly complex, but your job as an advocate is to assist the decision maker to come to the decision that you are advocating for. And the only way you can do that is, is by providing the logical steps that, that, that they can use. And the more assistance you can provide, the more persuasive you're going to be. I think you can do it in a number of ways. One is to watch good advocates. If you watch good advocates, you don't imitate them because everybody's different, but you can take and pick and choose from the advocates, the good advocates that you see, things that suit you and that seems to work for them. Again, I go back to the question of know your venue or know your court. Um, so I think that it's important to, um, if you want to practice, for example, in criminal trials before juries, to watch good jury advocates. So far as uh, advocacy before uh, magistrates and judges and panels of judges are concerned, where they have to give reasons. I think one way you can help with your persuasion is to put yourself in that person's shoes and imagine what that person will have to write or state if the cause is to be decided as you want it to be. Uh, and if you do that, look at it from their perspective, because bear in mind it's them who are making the decision, not you, um, that hopefully will make your task uh, in persuasion, of, of persuasion easier. And that task can be even more refined by the more you appear before someone, um, the more you get to know what that person likes or dislikes. So in terms of persuading that person, you obviously avoid the things that that person appears to dislike and uh, perhaps emphasise those things that the person seems to be more uh, amenable to. What do you got there in book? <laughs> the Art, Art of Persuasion. persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> I just picked a book off my shelf, which is by Antonin Scalia. Oh. And Brian Garner, this book of theirs has, there's one um, metaphor that they have in terms of the art of persuasion in there. Uh, this, this was particularly for the Supreme Court of the United States, but I've always thought it was a good metaphor, is that the, the council addressing the court should always picture themselves or imagine themselves as the junior partner in the firm who has all of the facts, explaining to the senior partner in the firm what the case is about. So that 
you have the right balance of deference but equality in being able to communicate that idea, which is something that came out of out of that book, I recall. That um, uh, you're not because some advocates will they'll assume the position of lecturer and you are student. That's not particularly persuasive. Um, and some will adopt the position of supplicant to king, and that's not particularly persuasive, but it's getting that, that balance between the two. One thing that is, I think, and this may be, this is just me, maybe, this idea of you know, scrupulous honesty, scrupulous adherence to ethics, um, added to that is you don't overstate your case, you make appropriate concessions, uh, you, you listen to the bench's questions and you answer those questions. If you can develop the reputation as being a trustworthy advocate uh, so that when, for example, you make a submission of law, that that's an accurate and always is an accurate submission of law, of saying what the law is, uh, then you're going to get a much better reception than if you're careless about those things. What is your ultimate advocacy tip or trick? All right, at the risk of seeming very superficial, keep your jabbo clean. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a male, especially when you're addressing a bench with a woman on it, keep your hands out of your pocket. Take your time. Never be rushed. If you have a question that you are not certain of the answer, then stop and think about the answer rather than rushing. Take your time. The other thing is that judges are trying to do justice between the parties. So they're not there to trap you or to create hurdles that are insurmountable. Judge, by and large, just wants to do a good job themselves. They want to assist you, therefore, to help you do a good job because that helps them. And so, as much as possible, take your time, relax, and it's not an amphitheatre. You're not with a judge who will put his thumb up or thumb down. <laughs> his or her thumb. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Don't come across as tricky. Oh, yeah. oh, don't don't come across as tricky. Oh, the, the, you know, you are you lose you lose anyway. I mean, even you know, in real life, if you've if people don't think that you are a credible person, they're not going to listen to you. Even if on the particular occasion what you're saying is entirely credible. So, my ultimate advocacy tip trick is don't be tricky yes so be be an honest advocate which is um uh, so essential to communication generally you you know it in your your personal life if somebody's got a reputation for being dishonest they will then find it difficult to communicate to with you because you've got a block. Um, and, and I do think um, uh, a K 
case has never been improved by overstatement by the advocate and cases are very ever harmed by understatement. If, if you are understating your position so that uh, when somebody goes to search whether or not what you've said supports the position and they find, oh, it's even better than they said, <laughs> um, you're, and that, that comes from being truthful, being able to say, well, it's not all in our favour there, but there are these things that, that we want you to look at. And, um, and uh, I, I think that is um, the, the wonderful thing about that um, reputational approach to good advocacy that Justice Mazza refers to is that the, the more you do it, the better it gets. So that you genuinely will have people who, even when they're on having a bad day, will will generally be able to communicate better than than the advocate who who has got baggage on the way in. So the final question that we ask to all Pidcast guests is, what does justice mean to you? Um, I could think of all sorts of facetious um, <laughs> <laughs> No, I, it was I think whatever was done this. in your court, of course. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. yeah. um, I think it's the uh, the unbiased uh, application of fair laws to all members of the community equally. But that's a lot easier to say than to achieve. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, at the at the highest, most abstract level, system of justice, rule of law, procedural fairness. These are the essential elements of a jury trial. They're the fundamentals of a justice system. At the individual level, then it's impartiality, objectivity, um, equality, a degree of compassion. Um, I'm probably a little old-fashioned in thinking of justice in old philosophical terms as as due proportion, that, that, that things are in due proportion, that, that um, uh, what should happen does happen. Uh, and the reason I think of justice in that way is that there are different kinds of justice. We work in legal justice. So we work for justice within a particular uh, framework, which is the legal framework, the law being designed to create that due proportion. But it's not the only kind of justice. You hear a lot now as an expression, social justice. That's about referring to the fact that there are some things of due proportion in our world that the law can't deal with. Uh, But... um, but uh, other mechanisms can. So that's how I would, I would think of justice as due proportion. In the context of what we do in the law, it is applying the law that we have, both with a sense of that due proportion and finding the proportion in it. I'm not the philosopher that the Chief Justice is, so <laughs> I, I tend to equate justice with the rule of law. And for me, 
um, we don't have a civil society, uh, we don't have security, we don't have an economy, uh, we don't have uh, a life where people can realise their full potential unless you have the rule of law. And by that, I mean everybody, and literally everybody, is subject to that rule. And underpinning all of that, of course, is the notion of an independent, incorruptible, and uncorrupted uh, judicial system. So that, that's, that's what I, I see. Probably because I do see uh, justice in that narrow terms, there are times where I see that the legal system does not bring about the result in conscience that perhaps should uh, be. Um, and though that dovetails with what the Chief Justice has said, because you've got a broader concept of justice, which I must say is a very attractive one. From Amy, Rihanna and Amara, we wanted to say thank you for listening to this podcast mini-series. We extend our sincere gratitude to our honourable guests, the Piddington Society, and all those who assisted in the production of this series. Without wanting to sound too cliche, if you liked the content, then please like, subscribe, and or leave us some feedback.